Last time on this special series of the Game Changers, where we're talking with Makudu Makaba from South Africa about her journey into teaching and her journey towards becoming one of the top teachers in the world. We learnt about the formative experiences of her childhood. I'm really curious to learn about how she progressed after her formal education into teaching and the side trip that she had to take along the way and what she learned and, and what it was like being a young teacher in the South Africa that was becoming more democratic at such a time of change. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Hello, Makudu. Thank you for joining me again. Thank you, Phil, for letting me into your program. The pleasure is all mine, ma'am. The pleasure is all mine. We finished up last time and we and you'd finished at Teachers College. What happened after college? Uh, immediately yeah. after college, I was born into marriage, right? When I got married, I was also expecting my second born within that marriage. And then, well, I had another challenges within the marriage it wasn't so good the minute we got married it wasn't like the minute we were dating we dated for two years and it was kind of okay unfortunately when you got into marriage the whole setup changed altogether yes also i i observed and i asked myself a question do i really want this in my life all the challenges that I have experienced in marriage, I decided to be on my own again because I'm married into a business family and then we are expected to work for the family business. And my husband was the only child to his parents who were very rich at that time. But the setup of the home took me back to how I grew up and how I observed women were treated. Then I decided to say, I no longer want to work for the family business. I want to look for a job because I cannot work when I'm not getting paid and told that the business is ours. And how? How is the business ours? Because the, the owner is still alive and we are working for him. If, and if I'm not getting paid, it means economically I'm not empowered and I need an empowerment in terms of economy they decided to say, no, go look for a work. And at that time, South Africa was uh, having a challenge of having over populate number of teachers who cannot fit into the system because all the colleges in South Africa were training teachers. So there were no posts. And then, okay, I didn't get a post and I knew I did not want to work for the work that I was not remunerated for. I then decided to selling the streets that's to start my own business <laughs> so and, in a way and, I was a rebellion and, and what, what were you selling in the streets you're a street vendor so what were you selling yes I was a street vendor and I was I was king pup and chicken feet chicken uh, intestines and snacks cold drinks so you've gone from being a single mom to finishing high school to training as a teacher you've got into a marriage you're not happy with the marriage and you're not happy with your financial situation You've got young children. It's at a time in South Africa when there are too many teachers, probably because there were few opportunities to get educated. So they're pushing too many people into particular pathways instead of allowing you more choice around it. And so you go and decide to set up your own business. Of course you do. Of course you do. Tell me what that experience was like. It was hard because I had to nurse two kids now. The one was 10 years and the other one was just a year. And I had to put the other one on my back when I'm going to get a stop and I didn't have a car 
and I'll just have to get the trolley boys, we call them trolley boys, the guys who pushes trolley for us and then we pay them to collect stock for me, come and put it to where I was working at the stalls and had to, we were, as a street vendor, you don't have a place where you put your stock, right? Mm. And the municipality has built the stalls for, for us, but they don't have, they are open. It's just a, a, a top, a shelf top and a, a little roof up there. Then it was tough because you have to take some of the stock and go and place it with someone who has a shelter and you still have to pay for the stock to be stored in that shelter. So the money that you are working for is not even enough because already you have a household to take care of. And as a firstborn child, I also have my, my siblings and my, at that time, my parents were separated and it was tough because my mama, my mom had to move to another place, leaving our home. And my father was no longer coming back home. So the challenge was too tense for me, but I had to carry on. I just told myself that this thing has to be conquered in one way or the other. How, I don't know, but I still have to do something. And indeed I did something. And when I made a little money, I decided to cover the shelter with the corrugated iron so that I can lock my stock inside the shelter. And then I was in trouble with the authorities, the municipal authorities. And they wanted me to take away the corrugated iron because they said, it's not supposed to be like that. And I said, no, but uh, I'm trying here to make a living and I have to pay for the stock when I put it with somebody. And I want to save that money. That's why I'm doing this shelter. I'm covering it so that I can lock my stuff inside. And I was so, so, so threatened to an extent that I just had to stood my ground. And I remember the other day they sent me about five people, the police, the, the local municipality police to come and tell me to move out of the store. And I said to them, no, I'm not moving out. I'm not moving out. You can take the lock and lock. And after you have locked, please give me a job. Because what I need is a job to look mm. after my kids. And I'm trying to make a living here. And you say, you tell me to lock. What's wrong with me covering? Because mm. I'm covering for something that I think belongs to me inside. You did a half structure and the half structure is not saving me. And I was made to feel bad about myself because whenever I went to pay for the permit to use the stall, my money was not accepted. Wow. <laughs> that meant that I will always have fine for not paying for my permits. Which means you and have to earn which fine, means you have to means you have to earn more to pay for the fines and, and, and so on. Yeah. Yes, I have to earn more to pay for the fines and they may not accept the fine because they don't want me to pay for the permits. Because they said I'm a, I, was, I, I, I crossed the borders by making the structure to look different from what they have done. You stuck at it though, didn't you? You kept going. Yeah, yeah, I kept going. But at some point I decided I had to think about something else. So the church I was going to, I decided to open a crutch, a preschool. Then I left the town, the street vendoring, and started a preschool. Mm. And when I started the preschool, I think I started with seven kids and they were not paying much because I had to feed them I had to look after them I had to teach them at the same time fortunately the church was not making me to pay the rent which was a good thing so the little that I got from the crutch that sustained me and I decided to go look for funding in big stores like pick and pay game stores 
so that I can get the toys for the kids. I can get the food from those stores. And indeed, I, I, I was successful with that. And then I ran the crutch. I ran the crutch for a period of three years. When I ran that crutch, I knew well, I, I needed a home for myself because at that time, I was even chased out of my in-laws' home because I was not complying to the fact that I need to work for them. Because you're, because you're, saying, because you're following your own vision of where you want to go to. Yes, I'm following my, 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 my inner compass. So mm. I'm going through with my inner compass and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm crashing on other people's toes at mm. the same time. Do you know, Makuta, when my, my, when my grandfather came to Australia, he came to Australia in 1927. He was a difficult man. They called him difficult as well too. I never, yeah. I never met him. He died 10 years before I was born. He actually died, when he died, he was the same age I am now, which is 52. They didn't have the medicines in those days to keep people alive the way they do now. But when he came to Australia from Poland, he was Jewish. And the part of Poland he came from, they persecuted the Jews. And the locals used to come around and beat them up and, and do all sorts of damage to them. And one day he had enough. So he came to Australia. He learned English while he was on the boat across to Australia. I don't know how he earned the money to get across there. But when he came to Australia, he went and picked fruit because that was the only job he could do. And then mm-hmm. somehow he then got the lease on a plot and he grew tomatoes and he saved up just enough money two, two and a half years later. And he sent the money to my grandmother who then walked to the boat and got on the boat and he met, he met her from Attle Dock and they went and got married and they started a life here. And, you know, within 10 years of coming to Australia, he had his own shop. It's a similar story. You know, it's that, it's that drive from within to survive and to do what you need to do for your family. So you've gone from running a street stall to running a crash. Tell me how you ended up in teaching there. I started listening to posts on a, on, a, on a local radio station. They were advertising posts for schools. And one day I had this post and it was advertised. And then I said, this is for me. Just said it to myself. And I applied for that post and then I prayed for it. I prayed for it. That God, you know how much I need this. I need mm. this. And I went for an interview. Uh, it was only one post. And the hall was packed with candidates who applied for the post. And I had to keep the faith. I had to keep the faith. And I was shortlisted. I was shortlisted. We were five. And the fifth one was not there. We were left four. And we went for the interview. I was the first to be called in. I don't even know what I said on that day. I can't even tell you what were the questions, but I remember talking to them and then I got out and the others went in, went in, went in, went in and then we all gone. And when the results, they, they put out the results the same day, they said, we, we must not go away. They're going to give us the results the same day. And voila, I got the post. Bravo, bravo. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, it was about, 75 kilometers away from where I was staying. Then I had to travel. I used the bus. I traveled to work every morning. It was a temporary post. I worked there for one and one year, eight months before I got permanently employed. Then I got employed. And when I started working, I started um, having my first home. My house went out. Uh, you know, South Africa has a program where they are giving uh, people houses. Before I got the post, my house was on the list that it's going to be built. So in January, 2003, I got the site number and everything. And in February, the house was built. They started building the house. And I was a teacher at that time. I was not permanently employed. 
Then when I have my first, my first salary came after three months. And then it was in April, February, March, April, I got paid. And the house was finished at that time. So you've got a job, you're getting paid, you've got a house at last, at yeah, long exactly. last. At long last. And the house was not uh, separated inside, it's just, it was just a wall. Then I had to modify it with the first payment that I got. And then I got my first bed. And then now I had other people to look after, which was my mom and my siblings. And I worked for that year, 2003, and the contract was terminated mm -hmm. uh, because it was a 12-month contract. And then had to go back. And the principal, I think, did not want me to come back. And on the last day of the closing, he said, okay, thank you for working with us. Bye-bye, blah, blah, blah. Your work is finished here. But I felt in, the, in my heart that I'm still going to go back there and work. Indeed, um, the minister announced in January to say those who were working, they must go back to their workplaces. Being supported by the post-establishment, they must find out how is the post-establishment. If the post-establishment still says they must go back to where they were working, they should go. And now I asked the principal for the post-establishment and then she refused. She said, no, I don't have that thing. And I'm not going to be told by a radio station or a minister from somewhere about my work that I'm doing. And then I had to go to the department straight and ask for the post-establishment and they gave me. And I found out that I still belong to that school. And then I just took my bag, went back to work. And she chased me. She said, no, 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 no. Who said you must come to work? And I said, no, I had the radio. I said, no, I'm not working with the radios. And then I had to, to go and report to the second, the, the second in charge to say, oh, I was going to work and they said I must go home and the post establishment is allowing me to go. And then she was called and then she couldn't answer for what she did. And then I had to go back to work. And I started working with her. I loved her as if nothing has happened. And I did my job. And eight months down the line, I got permanently employed in another school. And that's when I started working. The responsibility was huge. I had to take my daughter already was uh, about to go to the tertiary. My younger brother was also going to the tertiary. So they, my younger brother went to tertiary in 2012 and my daughter went to tertiary in 2013. Then I had two kids at tertiary that I had to take care of them and other kids as well. It's never easy in your life, is it? <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about that inner drive. What, what is that drive heading towards? What, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? What, what makes you so determined and so resilient? In my mind or within me, I want to break the chains of poverty that we lived in. That is my main thing. And seeing women being empowered. And I believe as well that we also have to play a part. You know, in life, sometimes uh, you don't have to play along in a game that you know you're not going to win. Find something that has been normalized within the environment, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of facing it head on, you want to manipulate the system. Instead of not manipulating the system, but being realistic towards the system. And I think that is the main thing that is keeping me who I am. Because it doesn't matter how people see me. As long as I understand myself, I know who I am. So I have nothing to prove. So you're really happy to change the rules of the game, aren't you? Yeah. You, you play a different game. You, you invent a yeah, different I, game. Yes. And, 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 and I listen to my inner self. If my conscience doesn't go well with something, I don't force. I have a, I have a, 
uh, a friend and a, and, a, and a mentor and a colleague called Leanne Wilson. And she is a, a Bidjara and Karakara woman who acknowledges her South Sea Islander descent. She, she is one of our, our, in, uh, our First Nations people here. And she's a very senior person in the state of Queensland. And she is very much, you remind me of her very much, in, in particularly in terms of that inner compass and that conscience about what it is that you do. I want to come... I would like to meet you. I'm sure she'd like to meet you too. She's a she's a powerful, powerful person and uh, very influential in my life. I want to take you forward to your teaching post and I want to pick up on this idea of that you play a different game, that you change the rules. So you've got your first permanent teaching post. At this point, it's what year is it at this point? Uh, when I got permanently employed, it was in 2005. 2005. By 2009, you are the runner-up in the ISPA Super Teacher Prize for ICT, yeah. Integration in the Classroom. So you've spent four years working on how to build technology into learning in your classroom. Tell us about that. I always wanted to try new things. Uh, like when I observed how my learners were adapting to, to my teaching strategies, I could see that we come from different worlds altogether. They seemed to be conversant with the coming of the fourth industrial revolution. Mm. They were global citizens. They didn't do things uh, the way we did them. And I was fascinated to learn from them. And as much as I was teaching them, I was giving them a chance to open up in my class. Because by the time when I was awaking in 2009, 2008, 2009, Traditional way of teaching to adapt to how my learners are learning. So you were inspired to follow the way in which students learn. You observe, you notice the way they learn, and then you allow that flow to go on. You've got this sense that this is a different generation. You've got a feeling around technology and why it's important. Tell us what you
teaching them, giving them everything, spoon feeding them and letting them come and take the assessment. So as they were working, they were engaged in their lessons. They would understand more. And that's when I became innovative. I used the innovative strategies, like using the indigenous knowledge within, wherein when I introduce a subject or a, a, a topic to them, I will relate to how they live their life on a daily basis before I can teach. For example, when I was teaching them about uh, geography, at high school I taught geography, I will take them literally, if you were doing the river system, I will take them literally to the river, not teaching them according to the book. So we will go straight to the river, observe the river patterns of that particular river. The tributaries, when you talk about the tributaries, can you look there? That is a tributary. That is what that is. Then in that way, they can understand. When they go back to the, to the book, now they will understand what does that mean because they saw it. So again, I'm listening to all of this. I'm listening to all of this. Project-based learning, experiential learning, integration of technology in the classroom, self-determination of learners, empowerment. All of this is coming from that sense of purpose that is driving you forward, which you're then projecting into the lives of your students and you're shaping your practice around this. What sort of influence were you having on other teachers at the time? At that time, I concentrated, firstly, I concentrated on empowering myself in terms of technology. And when I realized that I have acquired some skills, I decided teacher development programs. And then I approached my circuit manager to say, can you allow me to train teachers on ICT integration in the classroom? And she said, well, well, wonderful. That is a good initiative. You have my word. Just uh, give me time on how to put uh, the words on the circular and it will be out. And indeed, from then, I started teacher development once per quarter at that time until we did it once in a month. And, and what year is this? Were you, did you start the teacher um, development? It was now coming to 2014. Yeah. So you've gone from, and, and I know a little bit of this story because this, this is fabulous. It's, it's, you are the character of a teacher. You have all of the character of an outstanding teacher. So you start with one cell phone to get internet access for your class. And then you go from there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Because when they have to make a research, then we don't have internet. Then I'll use my phone, one projector and one laptop. Then my phone will access internet for the laptop and they can do their research as a class. And that was, the learners loved it. And it was a huge impact to their lives. They could see, oh, sometimes if I'm stuck with uh, something, I can access information and work on it and come with it in the classroom. And when I get the feedback, I can match from the research that I got if I got it right. There it is. And there that is. improved the learner self-confidence as well. How did you improve the amount of technology in your classroom? How did you get more for your kids? The kids loved that. And whenever they go home to their parents, they will talk about these new things that they're doing in the classroom, these experiments that they did, the project that they did. And it gave a lot of impact to the community. To an extent that when I decided that because I'm teaching the learners to integrate technology in the classroom, I decided to, call, to, to start a community-based program wherein I engage the youth and the women in the community to come and have lessons. So after school, when the learners were going home, then they will be coming in to learn and I will be teaching them. 
and it improved as well. It improved their economic status because some of them got employed from the program because they got certified by the University of Limpopo, some by the Global Technology Institute, which I collaborated with them. So, so you're collaborating with tertiary institutions, you're building an Indigenous knowledge, you are doing community engagement programs and community education programs. They're just layers of all of this, aren't they? And all of this speaks to empowerment. Every part of this yeah. speaks to the character yeah. of empowerment. Yeah. When you won the ISPA Super Teacher Prize, I know that you use that to help you get more laptops for your students and you, you connected with Microsoft at that point in yes, time. Yes, I connected with Microsoft through ISPA uh, because they started paying for my summits to attend more sessions and more summits on ICT in the classroom. And that's when I came across Microsoft. It was in 2013 when I met with Microsoft at the SchoolNet South Africa conference. And I started from there. And whatever I have learned from that conference, I came back and implemented in the classroom. Now I use it to modify. You see the SMAR, the SMA uh, where I was at the level of modifying my lesson and, and re redefining my lesson. Now I use the apps, the Microsoft apps, to, to redefine my lessons, build lessons, uh, uploading my lessons on YouTube, created the channel wherein learners can access my lessons even if they are at home, and then creating a blog when I, where I will upload everything. And that's when Microsoft recognized me as their Microsoft Innovative Educator Expert. And in 2015, I was nominated to go to the Educator Exchange Program at Seattle, at the Microsoft campus. And what did you learn there while you were at that program? Ah, it was great. You see, when you are yourself, the energy that you attract, it's so massive. Sometimes you even take a deep breath and pinch yourself and say, is it me? <laughs> Is that me? Because when uh, in every, the, we were put in groups. I remember I was with um, a teacher from Czech Republic, Canada, Germany, and Vietnam, and we were five and I was from South Africa. And we had to create a lesson, a global lesson that will incorporate every learner globally. And there was a lot of language barrier because a, a Czech Republican could not speak proper English and I could not speak Czech. And the Vietnamese at all could not utter a single word in, in English, and I could not hear any word from a... So the only people whom we could uh, interact and collaborate were three of us from Canada, South Africa, and Germany. But we decided that, okay, we use the app, the translation app from Google Translate, so that they read whatever they want us to know, and then we see, we look at it and then we check how we incorporate it and then we take the English one and then we convert it to their language. And then that's how we collaborated. And it was very fun at the end. And during that, we were, during the award ceremony, we got position two on the overall performance of lesson preparation. Uh, from out of 43 groups, more than 300 educators attended that event. And Another thing that took me by surprise, uh, there was somebody going around picking teachers randomly to come and, and sit down with the CEO to speak about the challenges in education in their respective countries. And I was among 12 educators to sit with Sacha Nadella to discuss issues relating to education on his round table. Just marvellous, really. 
you know, when you and when you when you think about the way in which your journey has gone from your personal journey of empowerment to your classroom and then teaching and students and teachers around the world. You've carried that inner drive and influenced the lives, not only of those in your own community, but then you've gone on to spread that all over the world. No wonder you were recognized as one of the 50 inspiring women in tech for South Africa. No wonder you've been an inspiration to so many. Uh, Makuti, thank you so much for, for this second conversation. I wonder whether we might come back and talk a little bit about the future of education next time. No problem. Fabulous. Thank you, Makuta. And we'll talk to you next time on this special Game Changers series with Makuta Makaba. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.